Hey guys, welcome to episode 18 of the Redeeming Productivity Show. I'm your host, Reagan Rose. This is the podcast where we talk about how Christians can get more done and get it done like Christians. Now, I have an excellent interview for you this week. Uh, I talked with Nate Pickwicks, who's a pastor from New Hampshire. He's also the author of several books and just an all-around a stand-up guy. Uh, so you wanna, you're going to want to listen to that. We talk about some awesome topics. We talk about the American Puritans, um, and we talk about social media usage. Is the, How do we glorify God with the way we use social media? Um, not just seeing it as a distraction or a place to go fight people on the internet, but actually a way to edify other believers and reach the world with the gospel. He has some great insights. You're going to want to stick around for those. Um, Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to cover a couple things with you. I have been working hard. I'm kind of setting up a new studio space in my garage. Uh, If you haven't seen, I have a YouTube channel now. I'm starting to slowly post some YouTube videos over there. Um, So you want to check out Redeeming Productivity on YouTube if you haven't already, because there's lots more coming down the pike there. Um, I also wanted to just let you guys know, if you ever want to reach out to me, you can hit me up at reagan at redeemingproductivity.com. Just send me an email. I'm always responding to people there. You, of course, can can comment on the blog post or or reach me on social media as well. Um, But I'm always happy to hear feedback from people or even questions, uh, anything like that. So please do reach out, uh, reagan at redeemingproductivity.com. Um, And then finally, before we get into the meat of this week's program, Christmas, you know, is right around the corner. And right after Christmas comes New Year's. Uh, And I think it's every New Year, you know, you just start to rethink, what am I doing? How can I do things better? How can I be more productive in a new year? And one of the best ways you can do that is by making a plan, Uh, setting goals and making a plan and putting dates to that plan. And for me, one of the most helpful things I've done, I think that helps me in that area, is to put things on a calendar. Now, I've been using these New Year calendars, that's N-E-U, year, uh, for several years. I had one in my old office, and I actually already have my 2021 bought and ready to go up in my new studio space in the garage. Now, if you haven't heard of these, this is not like your typical kitchen wall calendar with, you know, each month on a separate page and little paintings by Thomas Kincaid or something on it. Now, these are all one giant sheet. I think mine's two by four feet, and it's all the months of the year all lined up so you can look at the whole year at a glance. I love these. And right now, you can actually get one, your 2020 calendar, for 10% off. I, I have a little coupon code you can use. If you just go to redeemingproductivity.com slash calendar, you can get 10% off any of those wall calendars that they sell at New Year. So check those out. That's redeemingproductivity.com slash calendar and get a giant year-at-a-glance wall calendar there. And if you use the coupon code. Uh, Redeeming Productivity also gets a little kickback from it, which helps me to continue producing this podcast and the website and the videos and all the yakety yak that you love so much. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. Let's get into the interview with Nate Pickwicks. In this episode, I have with me Nate Pickwicks. Nate is the pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, and he's the author of several books, including Reviving New England and Why We're Protestant. 
He's also edited together several works by American Puritans, including his latest, The Faithful and Wise Servant, Fidelity and Pastoral Ministry, which is a distillation of Reverend Isaac Smith's sermons on spiritual leadership. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. This is a privilege of a lifetime. <laughs> and I, I didn't tell you to say that, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to do it. I mean, you and I, you know, we've we've chatted quite a few times uh, over the years, and even before the show, I think we were talking about just uh, a lot of the connections that we have together. And so I'm always, always happy to, to talk to you, brother, and other people that are coming from such a, a pedigree of ministry that I love. So yeah, it's, it's a real joy. Yeah, well, it's a joy to have you have you on. I'm glad you were able to do it. Um, really appreciate your ministry. Um, you've had a significant ministry even in the social media online space. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that later on. But um, maybe to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, you were born in New England, right? Maybe your testimony a little about your church. Yeah, so I was I was actually born uh, in New Hampshire, uh, lived in the town that I'm pastoring in currently, which is kind of a strange thing, uh, but was raised in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. That's quite a lot for a postcard, but that's the name of my town. Um, was born and raised here, went to school here, um, moved away for school, and met my wife and was originally not planning on coming back. I, I didn't think that this town had anything for me. I wanted to move on to bigger and better things, life in the big city, all that stuff. And uh, just slowly, the Lord just kept on drawing me back. We moved. I moved back to New Hampshire. Like I said, met my wife. Uh, we were living in a bigger city, going to church in another city, and then eventually just found ourselves uh, leaning more this way. And then we planted this church in 2013. And when we were looking at places that needed uh, a Bible church, you know, some more than simply gospel witness, but Bible teaching. Um, it just seemed like this is the place to be. You know, I knew the, the landscape. I knew a lot of the people. And so we kind of made the move to move back here and plant and haven't looked back ever since. And so, like I said, we've been here since 2013, uh, going into our eighth year, which is kind of exciting. Um, churches, I believe, are doing well. Uh, it's been growing, hopefully, uh, spiritually, but it has been growing numerically, which has been fun. And um, just get to to preach and teach and write and shepherd people and, and just try to love people from my own hometown. It's been really great. That's really cool. I know that's a dream for a lot of guys that, that go away that, that, you know, want to minister and want to pastor is to go back to the town that you love and the people that you love and get to be there. So that's, that's a really neat thing, how it worked together like that. There, there is a nervousness to it because, you know, the scripture talks about how a prophet has honor except within his own hometown. So it's like there is always the risk that, um, that it would not go well. And I, I, I counted an incredible kindness and providence of God that I actually moved away. I went to, to school in a different town and then college in a different state. So for all the years that I would have been rebellious and, you know, egged people's houses, you know, and stuff like that during, you know, things and you know, run around and cause trouble, like all those years I was somewhere else. And so I left when I was about 14, came back when I was, you know, 20 something. So all those, whatever testimony I would have ruined during those years was saved. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. So people just know me now, they know my name and they know my face because I grew up here, but now they just know me as the pastor in town. So it, it really, it couldn't have worked out any better so far. I mean, I'm 40, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, so far, it's been really, really neat. And um, there is a special blessing to it. You know, you get to 
there's people in my church who, you know, I used to, I grew up with their kids and, you know, there's even members where they used to be my Sunday school teacher. So it's just kind of a strange, weird thing, but it is really, really special. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, New England's kind of an interesting place for just spiritually, like you have all the history there. Um, but, you know, my understanding is that the East Coast, it, it can, tends to be spiritually tough. Um, what's it like ministering in New England? Yeah, so it's funny because I've talked a lot about this. I've, I've written about this and it, it seems as though, I don't know if it's that my perspective has been changing or if things are actually changing, um, but there are there's, there's a lot to lament, but there's also a lot to be really encouraged about. Um, the, the, the difficult part is that, you know, there is no, the spiritual temperature is very, very low. Um, I think when I've looked at the stats, you know, less than 2% of the population claims to be Christian, uh, at least in terms of what we would understand, you know, you and I biblically. Um, there's lots of Roman Catholicism, you know, that influence is strong here. So, you know, probably 60 or 65 percent identifies with some affiliation, but they're not, they're not, they don't have a love for God. There's no sense of God. Um, so there's no cultural mandate. You know, nobody goes to church just because, you know, you don't go unless you really want to be there. So um, you know, the general temperature is very low. Uh, the biblical knowledge is very, very low. Um, people come in and sometimes they really don't know anything. You have to start from square one with a lot of people. Um, Generally, I think there's a perception of New Englanders that, that they're cold, but I think that I've heard it explained that there are just different kinds of layers, you know, where Southern, po Southern folks might be more um, open and friendly up front, but then when you go a little bit deeper, it's harder to get inside versus New Englanders. If you have trust with them, you know, they will open up to you and they will be very loving and very kind. And um, there are very, very dear, sweet people up here. It's just, you, you can't just plow through that wall and get in right away. So it's just a different kind of a thing, I think. And I think a lot of that comes from sort of Emersonian self-reliance and individualism and just a guardedness and a protectedness that's more cultural than anything else. But, um, you know, but there are challenges, certainly. Um, you know, the number of churches that are preaching the Bible are a lot fewer. Uh, there's a lot of liberal denominations, a lot of liberal churches up here. But on the, on the flip side of that, um, even the last five years, I mean, I've just seen an incredible growth. More churches are being planted, and not just churches that are being planted, but more more pastors are preaching the gospel or preaching the Bible, expository preaching. Like, that's growing up here. Um, I've talked to several guys. It's not just me. I've talked to other people who are witnessing the exact same thing in their context. Um, some churches are experiencing explosive growth, um, which is just just remarkable, you know. So... I think that, you know, when the when the scripture talks about the harvest being plentiful, the labor laborers being few, I mean that's really New England. I mean the, the harvest is so abundant here. There's so much work to be done. Um, you know, the the concern about, you know, market share and you know you can only have so many churches per square foot or, you know, whatever it is in other parts of the world, that's not that up here. We could we could use five Bible churches in every town, you know, it's it's really that you know, that needed. So Wow. A lot to look forward to, a lot to be excited about, and um, I, I count it a privilege that I get to minister here. So, you know, that's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it, you think about the the South, or you know, I, I went to college in West Michigan, and they kind of they call it the Bible Belt of of Michigan, and I think people tend to think of the places that are 
more culturally Christian, or as you said, people go to church just kind of because that's expected of them. You tend to think of that as, oh, that's more friendly towards Christianity. But in some ways, it's, it's like almost harder to minister mm-hmm. to people who think that they're believers and have to undo a lot of bad teaching they have if, right. uh, when they do get saved. There, there are many advantages to, to starting from square one with someone who doesn't even have any background about the Bible. Exactly. And I think you hit a good point, too, where, you know, the, the danger of having to unteach and, and basically convince lost people that they're not Christians. I mean, that's definitely a hard thing. I think the the advantage to being in places that are more cultural is that you, you just have more options. You know, if you if you want good teaching, you can usually find it pretty easily somewhere, even if you have you know, a huge, you know, prosperity gospel megachurch, you know, five minutes down the street, you might have a Bible church 10 minutes down the street. So it works out. Whereas here up north, you know, you have to travel in some cases an hour, hour and a half to find a church that preaches the Bible. So I think the the availability of, of sound teaching is part of the challenge. But I totally agree that just because it's culturally friendly doesn't really mean anything because you could fall into moralism with no gospel which is even more damning i think so yeah it's uh it's definitely something to watch out for yeah well said um your most recent book you, you know you did a you edited together some sermons from isaac smith and his teachings on spiritual leadership um my guess is probably a lot of believers even if they're interested in you know the church history and Christianity in America, they probably might not know who Isaac Smith is. Um, what made you interested in him and, and want to edit together some of his works and release it? So this really should be a whole other show, but let me tell you, no one knows who Isaac Smith is. Not a single soul in, um, in the country, guaranteed. Um, Isaac Smith was the first pastor of my hometown, so right here in Gilmanton. And um, the funny thing about it is that Dustin Benge was actually visiting over the summer, and he and I kind of rediscovered him together and um, realized that there was this, you know, post-Great Awakening uh, reformer that was preaching and teaching in Gilmanton for 43 years. And again, no one knows who he is. He's only He only published like five sermons in his entire lifetime. There's very, very little information about him. Uh, ultimately, my goal will be to do research and write a full biography to kind of really recover his life story. Um, but where he's significant is that he he falls in the stream of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, his One of his mentors was Joseph Bellamy, who was a kind of a, a, a high figure in the Great Awakening. He was friends with Eliezer Wheelock, who was the founder of Dartmouth. So he traveled in a lot of those post-Great Awakening circles and was part of uh, frontier ministry in New England. And so even when, after there was already, you know, towns and cities settled, he was still going out and basically starting from scratch and, you know, not just planting a church, but planting in a town. You know, the whole town was brand new. So it's kind of this uh, snapshot of what does it look like to be a faithful minister in an area that is frontier and brand spanking new. So that's kind of his story. So um, he's not even really a Puritan. I mean, he, he didn't, he was born in 1744. So it was definitely post Puritan, but he kind of regarded himself as a Puritan in his mind. He really identified with the Puritans. And when you read his work, you can see the thread of Puritan thinking and reformed theology in his writing. So um, I'm just fascinated with him. And um, you know, he, he means something special to me. Uh, because he was pastoring um, in in a town that I'm currently in, and I'm I am pastoring families that 
uh, were under his care 200 years ago. I mean, the, the heritage goes that deep. So <laughs> that's incredible. Um, it really is remarkable. So there's a lot more. I mean, I want to get his work out. I want to get his name out there. I want to write about his life, but not just him, but also kind of paint a picture of what what New England ministry really was. Um, and so if, if you've read Reviving New England, um, that's really just step one in my mind. Uh, I've got another book coming out with Dustin uh, with Reformation Heritage called The American Puritans. And we cover the first hundred years of Puritan history in New England um, sort of biographically. So, I mean, it's like that's a lot of what I want to do is recover in people's minds where they've come from. Um, when, when the Bible, when, when the Lord deals with Israel, he was always telling them, remember what I did in the wilderness. Remember back to this. Remember back to that. God is always using memory to stir up faithfulness for the present day. And so that's the value of history. That's the value of biography. And so that's part of what I want to do is, is kindle a fire and remind people that, you know, what we're teaching is not just novel for today. We're teaching timeless truths um, that people have been teaching for hundreds and even thousands of years. And it's a way to jog people and remind them that, hey, you know, this, this quirky thing that you call Reformed theology, uh, this goes back to Paul, back to Christ. And this has been there. And, uh, you know, faithful believers before us have believed this and taught this. And um, so Isaac is just, a, he's just a one figure in the whole thrust of what I'm hoping to do if the Lord allows me to. So, um, but yeah, again, we could, <laughs> we could talk about Isaac. He was a remarkable guy. Um, one of these days, if I can actually write the book, I'll, I'll probably talk more about it. But just really fun, a lot of fun to kind of see what's been here and I suppose every town has those kinds of figures in them, you know, but um, you know, I get to just be in a spot where I get to be allowed and talk about it. So it's fun. <laughs> That's really cool. So you said you and Dustin Benz, you're doing a book on the American Puritans, maybe for listeners who aren't familiar. When you say the American Puritans, uh, who, who are they? Sure. So there's, there's a huge uh, academic or scholastic debate about the term. You know, uh, if you were to look at Puritanism, I mean, Puritanism is really a distinct movement for a specific time. It's approximately uh, 1560 to 1660 in England. It was a, a spiritual movement taking place in the Church of England. So, so some folks will say, okay, well, only what happened between those periods of time in England is what counts. But the interesting thing is that when persecution came in England, there were several, several hundred um, leaders and even thousands of Puritan believers who had to flee England, and many of them came across the Atlantic and settled in New England. And so, you know, even though they weren't technically, academically Puritans, they brought with them the Puritan spirit. So leaders like John Cotton, I mean, he was uh, a faithful minister. He influenced John Owen and Thomas Goodwin and others, uh, Thomas Shepard, Thomas Hooker. Uh, William Ames, believe it or not, was planning on coming over, but actually passed away before he could get on the ship and come over. So we almost had William Ames here. It's kind of crazy. So you have a lot of these Puritan leaders, and they're writing books, and they're preaching, and they're teaching, and they're doing everything that they were doing in England, but they're doing it in New England. And so, um, but, but it's not many people really know who they are and what they did. So the, the recent projects, obviously this book is part of that, but the American Puritan series, that's a reprint series. A lot of the focus of that is to just try to get their names back into people's minds and to try to read some of these books that, you know, maybe not as, uh, not all of them are as devotional as other works, 
but they're still really important to read. I mean, you read Thomas Shepard. I mean, he's like a, a New England Martin Luther. He just writes with such fire and zeal, and he's descriptive and passionate, just really neat, you know, and people used to read these books, but now they don't anymore. So, um, again, part of that sort of revival spirit of getting these people back into folks' mind and sort of rekindling an, at least an interest in what they were doing and why they were so significant. Uh, everything we have in America today really comes from uh, the labors that they did 400 years ago. And what an opportunity to do that then 2020 at the 400th anniversary of the Plymouth landing. So um, it's kind of, it's New England's going to be explosive next year with all things pilgrims and all things Puritans. And <laughs> it's going to be a lot, a lot of, of shoes with buckles on them. Oh, I can't wait. I want to get a big, huge hat with a buckle on it. You know, I don't even know where to find those, but. Oh, I assume um, that's how you guys dress all the time. I, I'm just picturing you wearing that right now with the turkey under one arm. <laughs> I could make some comments, but for the sake of godliness, I will not. <laughs> no, no, it's cool, though. I mean, the funny thing is, is actually out in your neck of the woods, um, Joel Beakey is putting on a Puritan conference at Grace Community Church in June of next year. So, um, hoping to be able to make it out to that. So uh, he's going to be bringing the New England spirit to California, which will be really fun. So um, <laughs> from West it's Michigan, be, that's right. From West Michigan. That's right. No, it's going to be a blast. I'm, I'm really looking forward to next year and just, uh, just to kind of get excited about just some of our history, you know, and try to highlight what was good about it. You know, I think that's kind of the key thing. Yeah. It, it's interesting too. I think, you know, I, I grew up, I went to a Christian high school. And so we learned about American history and the Puritans and things. And even still, I think I walked away like probably most Americans thinking, those are the guys who killed all the witches. That was, you right. know, that's their legacy. And that, that's it. You know, the Salem witch trials, things like that. Um, and it's so much, there's so much richer for um, the history of what the Lord did in America and, and even, you know, even government-wise. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a huge ignorance um, about what those men did and what they were about, especially now on this side of, you know, the reform resurgence, um, you know, with new Calvinism and all that, that stuff that happened in the mid-2010s-ish um, era. Um, I think a lot of people are still, you know, they might, they know who Spurgeon is, they they know who Edwards is and some of these guys, but they don't know even the folks that are probably close closest aligned to them and closest in proximity of history and even geography um mm -hmm. so i think it's a good work that you're doing helping people to learn about these folks um who are so in line with us yeah and the thing about it is is um I, there, there's a huge movement there has been for about 80 years now to recover the the work and the reputation of the american puritans i mean it's been going on at harvard it's been going on all over the place but the, the, the problem is, is that it hasn't found its way to the popular level. So Cotton Mather, for example, I mean, his reputation has basically been redeemed since the mid-70s. I mean, there's been a lot of academic work that is really, because history is complicated. It's never black and white. You know, there aren't good guys and bad guys, and that's the end of it. I mean, there are flawed, sinful people doing things and trying to interact with each other. And so someone like Cotton Mather um, I mean, yeah, he believed some strange things. Some of it was cultural, but some of it was a little bit wonky. But I'll tell you, he was a he was a, a wonderfully uh, brilliant, uh, Christ-centered 
gospel preaching minister. I mean, he was a fascinating guy. And again, the academic circles recognize that. I mean, he's got more, more biographies written about him in the last 25 years than almost anybody. Um, but no one knows who he is. They just think he's a witch killer, and that's not who he is. Um, and so to be able to do some work on him and to sort of kind of recover his life, he's the last chapter of our book, by the way. So I, I got to have the privilege of writing about Cotton Mather and just really the fascinating things about him and just realizing, yeah, you know, these people, they, they sinned. They, they were some things that they did that were not good. Um, but in the end, I mean, they believed in the Lord. They loved Christ. They believed the gospel. And they were trying to be faithful where they were, uh, despite, you know, some of the problems that they had. So, um, yeah, I mean, really, that's the goal is to get a lot of this stuff into the popular level and just help people understand, like, you know, you can still read them, uh, warts and all, as Luther used to say, um, and, and read them and understand who they are and appreciate their contribution, even if you can recognize just like characters in the Bible. I mean, I'm not going to go emulate David's life completely, but I do want to emulate his faithfulness. Um, and so that's just kind of what I want to try to help do, if possible, you know. Yeah, well said. Um, switching gears a little bit here, you know, the, the focus of this podcast is really just on how Christians approach getting things done, um, their work, how, how we honor Christ and steward our lives well um, in terms of being productive as believers. And that's really one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you just, you strike me as a busy guy, you know, leading a church uh, as, as a pastor is more than a full-time job. And yet you also, you write many books, you're um, active online. Uh, you, you just seem like a guy who has a lot going on. And so I just wanted to ask you a few questions related to how you think about your work, how, how you um, um, get things done and, and, and you know, what drives you? Um, yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that um, only because uh, yesterday I, I announced a sabbatical from social media until January. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so uh, the, the short answer I think to that is that um, I'm still learning how to do all this. And, um, you know, with things, things are always on the move. Um, our church has been growing. Um, numerically, which means that the responsibilities that I've had at the church have grown. And so what I was doing even two years ago, um, the demands have changed, uh, which again is good. I mean, you're supposed to shepherd the flock among you. So that's the primary responsibility. But, um, you know, trying to have my hands in a couple different pies, if you will. And um, I mean, I love to write um, and I, I enjoy social media. Initially, social media for me was a way to try to find other people that were like-minded. Mm -hmm. I didn't know very many pastors in New England. You know, this is seven, eight years ago. And um, so social media was a way, I mean, Twitter was a way to connect with people all around the country, all around the world who were like-minded. I mean, I think you and I probably connected through social media initially. Yeah, I think um, that's it. Yeah, you know, and it's like I, I'd never, I would never know half the guys I know from Masters. I wouldn't know anybody from, uh, you know, the Banner of Truth guys. I mean, some of those guys are, are friends of mine and, uh, my friend Dustin Benj, my friend Landon Chapman, I mean, a lot of these people I've met are, have all been through social media. So, I mean, social media scratched an itch for me to find like-minded friends. And then through that have actually discovered even more friends that are right in my backyard that I didn't even know existed. So it has served that end. But, um, you know, social media is also a powerful tool uh, to advance the gospel, to advance gospel ministry. 
um, you know, the books that I write and the projects that I edit, um, I, I try to not make them an end unto themselves. I mean, in the end, there is a mission behind the work I'm trying to do. Uh, every project that I work on has an underlying goal behind it, uh, or it's part of something, you know. So um, it's been to raise a banner for New England, for ministry in New England. It's been to help people remember and to be faithful. It's been to teach the Bible. I've got another book coming out, uh, hopefully, I think, next year on Bible study, on how to study your Bible, how to read your Bible. So just real basic things, but um, trying to encourage and help the church at large, which in effect helps my own church. And so um, I think what drives that is a desire to be fruitful. Um, I have a kind of an insatiable desire to just keep on moving. I don't like to sit still. Um, but along with that has been several seasons of trying to self-correct and, um, you know, stave off um, some tiredness and some fatigue um, to try to be disciplined and say, you know, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. You know, if social media is causing you sleepless nights or if it's causing tension or if your life is becoming unbalanced, take a break, you know. And um, so I'm trying to do that um, and trying to be faithful to what God is calling me to. Um, I don't have a lot of hobbies <laughs> to, to my to my wife's and my family and my church's dismay. I don't don't I don't really do anything. Uh, I mean, we we shoot guns up here, so I you know I've gone to some friends' houses and shot at some targets, and people go hunting. And but really, my passion is writing and preaching and reading theology, and it's it's kind of quintessential pastoral ministry. But that's what I love, and so that's what I do. So. I put my kids to bed at night and I grab my laptop or I grab a book and I just start working and I work until I can't work anymore. And then I go to sleep. Uh, I sleep more than John Owen, which is good. So, um, <laughs> but it's just, it's just an insatiable desire. Like I just want to work. You know, I feel like I'm 40. God has given me an opportunity to minister and I just want to minister. I want to do my job and I want to do it well. And uh, I don't want to go to be with him and have wasted time. And, um, but along with that does come the rest and the, the balance and all those things, which I'm learning. So, um, I know it's a long answer to a short question, but, um, I think really trying to find balance and first of all, seeking faithfulness over anything else, um, not fame, not, you know, adulation, not book contracts, not seeking those things, more followers, more hits, whatever, but just seeking to be faithful first and trying to have that drive what you do. And um, if God decides to bless that, then he'll bless it. If he doesn't, then that's on him as well. So um, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I don't always do it very well. I mean, I'm constantly correcting and constantly repenting for things I'm doing wrong. But I just really want to be faithful in whatever God has called me to be. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talking about how you you have the long view in mind. You're thinking about the things that you're doing. It's not about the book that you're working on specifically. It's not about, you know, this tweet or, or this sermon. It's, it, it seems to me from what you're saying that you're thinking about the sum total impact of your life and what you're trying to accomplish on a bigger scale. Um, would that be accurate? I, I think so. I think you said it a lot more grandiose than I would have assumed <laughs> of what I'm trying to do. But yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I'm, I'm ministering, I'm pastoring a church, you know, in a, in a, I would say maybe a challenging part of the country, but I think every, I think every church has its challenges. I mean, I think 
I think in New England, you just have a more concentrated number of towns and regions that are that are challenging. But I think I think it doesn't do justice to every other ministry. Be, you know, be, every pastor is going to have their struggles. I mean, you could be in the Bible Belt and still have the same problems. So, I think that's what we're trying to do: is is be faithful where we are. And I think we do have to have a long view in mind, um, because for me, if just if if I had to have my pick, my goal is to see Christ glorified in every single town in New Hampshire. It's not that I don't care about America or the world, but New Hampshire is my is my backyard. So I want to try to be part of raising up pastors and get preaching going and sound doctrine. And I want to encourage other pastors in the area. And, you know, I look at the history and I'm like, man, you know, every single town had faithful churches and, I mean, Bible ministry was exploding here. Why not again? You know, and if God decides that he doesn't want to have that, then my labor will be limited. You know, it's the fruitfulness will be limited. But if he decides to bring spiritual awakening, if he decides to bless the region, why not be part of that? Like, why not try for that? So, I mean, anybody who's in any area, any ministry, any town, you know, why not be the one that God uses? And again, we can't control how fruitful we're going to be. But if we have an opportunity to minister, if we have an opportunity to have an influence or to lead someone to Christ or, you know, plant a church or teach the Bible, my goodness, take it. Like, why not just take it, you know, and uh, and do really well with it? So I think that's what's on my mind. Um but again, you know, I mean, uh, you know, with a family, like, you know, you have to take care of your marriage and your kids. And, you know, so there's just so much balance that has to take place there, which is hard to find. But, um, I mean, the reformers weren't kidding. I mean, all of life to the glory of God, that's what they were shooting for. And I don't I don't think his his honor and his glory deserves any less than that. Very well said. What's a typical week look like for you? Um. I don't know. That's a good question. I would say, so one thing that I am struggling to do and one thing I'm trying to become disciplined in is scheduling days off and scheduling downtime. Um, That's something I'm not as good at, but generally speaking, um, I shoot for Mondays as a day off or a down day. And then uh, the rest of the time I'm in in my office working on sermons and prep. Um, I really try to be deliberate about making ministry uh, church ministry happening during the daytime. Uh, five o'clock, I punch out, I go home, I'm with my family. Um, I do disciple um, groups of men on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. My wife disciples a group of ladies on Wednesday nights. Um, but apart from that, I mean, every other night, you know, I'm home, I'm in the house. I don't travel for appointments. I don't travel for meetings. Uh, nighttime is family time. And uh, then after my kids go to bed, my wife and I might have time together to talk or watch TV or whatever, but I'm trying to do my books at night. So I don't, I don't write during the day. I don't edit during the day. That's all at nighttime. I'm doing that. Um, you know, Saturdays are kind of a floating day and then the Lord's day is obviously for him. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty busy. Um, and it kind of changes weekly depending on what the tasks are, uh, what the church needs. Um, but I really try to be diligent on making sure that uh, I'm getting the work done during the week. I am not a Saturday night sermon prep guy at all. <laughs> <laughs> that that mortifies me. Uh, Saturday night, I'm just reviewing what I've already done, but uh, the sermon's done way before that because I want to make sure that it's in my mind, in my heart, and ready to go on Sunday morning. So, um, 
yeah, I don't like lots of change. Um, you know, traveling kind of throws that off when I do travel, but uh, I just like to be here, working here. I really like having my heart and my mind here as much as possible. So, mm. Are you kind of more of a night owl guy? or a, a, you know, I am. Like I wish yeah. I was a 5 a.m., get it all done. My wife's like that. She can get up and work, but yeah, I'm I'm a night owl, and I, I don't know where that comes from, but I don't like it. <laughs> but <laughs> you play the cards you're dealt, you know? So. Yeah. No, I, my brain shuts off at about 5 PM. So I'm on oh, the my opposite word. side. I'm just done oh. for the day. <laughs> so I have to get up early. Um, oh, cause that's wow. the only time I'm useful to anybody. Yeah. It's funny how the Lord's design us differently like that, you know? Oh yeah. People. Yeah. It's funny. Cause you know, sometimes 10 o'clock at night, I'm going to talk about theology and my wife's nodding off. I mean, she's getting sleepy. <laughs> she's the same way. She, She's toast to right around probably seven thirty, eight o'clock. I mean, you know, she'll disciple till nine, but at a certain point she kind of, she's done for the day, close her business, all done, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to have conversations, theological conversations at 1030 at night and she's just, I'm putting her to sleep, you know? So, <laughs> um, but I'm trying to become more of a morning person if possible and we'll see. But Do you use any kind of uh, systems to keep yourself organized on track? Are you you a tech guy? You've notebooks or, you know, how do you keep your appointments and and tasks all straight? Yeah, I'm definitely old school. Um, You know, I, uh, I don't, I've tried so many different apps. Um, Everybody, it seems has an app for something, but I just have an old fashioned um, calendar notebook. I go to Walmart and I just buy myself a, a regular old planner. And I go through and I write everything down. So if I have appointments, I'll just, I'll keep that on a physical calendar. So it's in front of me. I don't use my phone for that. Um, if it comes to scheduling my day, I've, I've kind of fluctuated between techniques with that. I mean, sometimes I'll actually write down, you know, all, all seven days and I'll block out my time. And um, one thing that I was encouraged to do early on, and I'm trying to figure out how to, how to really implement this is to see your day in thirds, um, you know, three, four hour blocks. Um, and whatever you're doing as a minister, you try to work at least two out of those three blocks. Um, cause I think the temptation for us is to think that we have to work from, you know, eight to five or whatever, and then that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you're in ministry and say you're discipling at night, you know, I mean, I go on, on Tuesday nights, for example, I go from seven to about nine, nine fifteen. that's the evening. And then I'm doing prep before and kind of, you know, defragging after. So, you know, if I work in the morning and I know I'm working that night, maybe I will take an afternoon and just, you know, go for a walk or go for a drive or, you know, go home and relax, whatever, and not feel the pressure to like have to be in the office doing something and putting in 12 hour days every single day. So trying to just schedule and block out your time, um, trying to do that again, it's not always successful, but but really making sure that as a pastor, you see that even the nighttime work is still work. It's not just something on the side. It's part of your job. So, um, and just planning accordingly, but yeah, it's all analog. I don't, I don't do it digitally. It's just, it's, it's on paper in front of me. Hmm. Um, circling back to, we talked a little bit about social media usage and I know you said you're, you're taking sabbatical from it. Um, yeah, actually, I interviewed Tim Challies recently, and he actually mm. said during that that he had completely stopped going on Twitter. He still posts, you know, when he has blogs and stuff on there, but he completely stopped going on there because of, you know, the ugliness that he saw there, um, mm-hmm. and it was just discouraging. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I've just, over the years, I've seen you tweet multiple times about how, okay, I'm thinking differently about social media. I think early on you had like fake accounts for people, like (laughs) joke accounts, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, Yeah, I I won't tell you how many I have right now, but they're still still there. Uh, But I... I will say something about that, though, that, um, that, you know, even when you make a fake, a fake account or a joke account, first of all, I make sure that if it's a joke account, it really is a joke account, like, and it's very obvious that it's that I don't want to impersonate people. And I don't want to, I don't want to go on there and do things that I wouldn't do just myself. And I'm not going to say snarky or hateful things, you know, it might be different. um, But it's, it's, I want to still maintain my witness even through something that's a joke. Um, you know, Church Curmudgeon does that. I mean, I, I know who runs that account, and he maintains integrity on both sides of that, which I think is important. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think I think the problem is is that people they log on to social media. I think Twitter's especially, Facebook's a different animal, but you log online and it's like when people hit the login button, they forget that they're Christians mm-hmm. and they just, and it's out of the heart that the hand tweets. I mean, it's like, they just, whatever hateful or spiteful or sinful or fleshly impulse they have in their brain, it goes right to the finger. And I'm thinking, man, like, do you text your mom with that thumb? Like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> like it's, it's just, uh, I don't understand why people feel like they can do that. And I think it's because they can hide behind the screen and, People will post and say things that they would never say to somebody in person, which makes them a coward and makes them a hypocrite. And if you really are a Christian, then you need to act like a Christian online. And if you if you sin publicly, then repent publicly. You know, and if you have something against your brother, go to them on direct message and talk to them. You know, and so I I don't think it's I don't think I'm trying to do anything that Christ wouldn't have me do. I I think we have to be godly and we can't be just like the world um you know and i I don't think that precludes you know having things that you say that are edgy i think there's a place for um a godly amount of snark and and sarcasm you know i mean scripture has sarcasm in certain points of admonition i think having edge isn't bad and disagreeing isn't bad but it's how you do it um if you're on there to destroy people then you're in sin and you need to stop and repent. And um, if you're there to gossip and slander, then you're not there for the right reasons. And so I see a lot of it. Um, and I, I've changed just how I've interacted. I've gone from following a lot of people to unfollowing a lot of people. And every time you do that, people's feelings get hurt, which is challenging. So I've recently refollowed a whole bunch, but then I go on my timeline and I'm like, my goodness, this is just a mess, you know? So it's, it's constantly trying to evaluate um, how you engage and uh, it can be depressing. And uh, so at a certain point, you just have to kind of cash in your chips and say, I'm going to take a break. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and and to, to know that it's okay. You know, I mean, I've got, you know, a, a decent following and just to have to know that, look, if I come back and they're all gone, then so be it. And that's okay. And to try to be okay with that. Um, but in the end, I mean, your witness, nothing's more important than keeping conscience and having a good witness. And so um, if that, if your social media platform suffers because of that, then so be it. Hmm. What kind of advice would you give someone who, who's thinking, you know, I want to use social media profitably. I want to minister and, and be ministered to by people uh, on social media. What kind of principles would you give them? 
uh, delete the app from your phone and uh, you know, <laughs> no, just uh, no, no, no. Uh, I think I think that there is a way. I've coached a few people through how to do it. Um, I think just basic principles. Um, something as simple as you know, put your real name on your profile. Don't don't hide behind a persona. You know, be a real person because that way you're accountable. You know, when your when your church leadership goes online. I mean, I have people from my own church that follow me on Twitter, and so they know what I post. I don't post anything there that they wouldn't hear me say in the pulpit, you know. So um, be the same person you are online as you are offline, and invite your church leadership, whoever they are, to follow you and to check on you. And so I think having, you know, a picture, having your name, having your real bio on your page, just be honest before other people who you are. Um, And I think in terms of engagement, um, seek to be um, edifying, you know, tweet content that's going to be good. Um, you know, I mean, obviously Bible quotes and, you know, verse references and thoughts and scripture meditations and, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I post a lot of jokes. I mean, I try to be, I enjoy that kind of stuff, but make sure your jokes are appropriate, you know, um, just again, try to be godly with what you post and trust that if you post good content, um, that it will get traction and be whatever it's supposed to be. Um, I think Dustin Benj, again, I've talked to him a couple of times um, about him today already, but um, he's really good at that. I mean, he doesn't get into all the debates and all the craziness. I mean, he's got opinions about things, of course, but he just posts good content. And miraculously, I mean, people just follow him like crazy. And the interaction he gets on his platform is remarkable. But all of it is just from tweeting content that's God-glorifying, and that's really all he does. And um, and people, they share it like crazy. So I think if you have integrity and if you seek to actually add uh, edifying content to what's being – to the conversation, then you're also encouraging other people to do the same thing and not getting into every single debate that goes on. And I think if you do that and people grow to trust you, then when you do have something that you want to share, say it's a book or an article or an event coming up, when you share it, people trust you, and they're more likely to engage because they know that you're not you're not going to be two-faced and that you're in, you have integrity. So, um, I think that's part of uh, perhaps why content has gotten traction. I think with me is because I've tried to be um, just faithful in how I engage, and I think that there's a level of trust that you build over several years with people, um, and I think people just grow to trust that. You know, that's really helpful. So you'd mentioned you have um, this book coming out with Dustin Benj, The American Puritans. When is that um, due to release? So that's scheduled for May of 2020. So really excited about that. I've already seen some promo for it and I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. It's kind of fun, you know, but uh, yeah, that'll be out in May, hopefully. And that's called The American Puritans and it's by Reformation Heritage. Is that right? Reformation Heritage, yep. And then what other projects are you excited about that are coming down the pike? Um, well, so then I'm also launching the American Puritans series with H&E Publishing. So I, I had done a few volumes on my own, just self-publishing, and then H&E picked up the series. And so we've actually were rep- reprinting and republishing the first two I did. And there's a third book coming out um, by uh, another editor. Uh, PJ Mills has a book coming out in that series. And so we're looking to release all three of those uh, all at once, and then start releasing titles on that series. And so, along with the book, 
um, talking about some of their lives, we're going to have a series of reprints coming out. So that's on the on the on the foreground. Um, and then I've got a book on um, Bible study coming out. I, I, have, I don't know if I'm allowed to give the title yet, but um, uh, that's coming through Moody, um, and that'll be coming out sometime either late next year or the year after. So that's something I'm working on currently. So, um, yeah, those are some of the stuff, some projects that I'm doing now that I'm excited about. And how can people keep up with what you're doing? I mean, obviously you're taking a, a short sabbatical here from social media. Is Twitter the best way for people to, to uh, keep up with you, or is there somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, Twitter and Facebook, uh, I do keep a, a public Facebook profile. I mean, my, my personal one I keep for friends and family and church members, but um, I'm on there, uh, just Nate Pickowitz. You know, you can look me up on Facebook. And then Twitter, Twitter's a big one. Uh, I'm on there. Generally, I'm on there just about every day, and I'll post things, and I'll see when people tag me and stuff, I'll see it there. But, yeah, I mean, that's usually kind of um, my stream of ministry consciousness, if you would. That's kind of what I'm thinking of doing at any given time, so... Yeah, Twitter, Facebook is kind of where it's at. I don't, I don't do Instagram or any, anything like that. I just, I'm old school. So, yeah. Nice. Well, Nate, thanks so much for taking the time and, and being on with me today. This has uh, been very edifying for me, and I, I think uh, hopefully will serve the church well, too, and, and the people who listen. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. All right. You have a good one, and try to stay warm. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I will. We have clothes for the for the weather up here, so it, it works out. I've heard about that. Warm clothes. And you mentioned something about muskets. What did you say about earlier? About firearms? <laughs> we don't have those in California. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So the hat with a buckle and a musket and turkey under the arm. That's a good imagery. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's what we look like, you know. I think, we have the, uh, I think we have the promo image for the podcast right there. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, right. If I go to California, I have to get like a Hawaiian shirt. That's kind of the, uh, the standard protocol over there, right? That that's how, how we all dress, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yep. Sandals or flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts. So there you go. Touche. <laughs> all right, brother. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for sticking around. I hope that you benefited from that interview. I know that I did. Uh, so follow Nate on Twitter. Uh, check out one of his books, Why We're Protestant is Excellent. All of his books are great. Um, and try to keep up with what he's doing. We'll be back next Monday with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you've listened and you like what you're hearing, why don't you give us a review? That helps other people to discover it that might not otherwise find out about Redeeming Productivity. I will see you next time. And remember, in whatever you do, do it well and do it all to the glory of God.